Welcome to the People and Performance Podcast, featuring guest experts from such global brands as NASA, Salesforce, the Milwaukee Bucks, Staples Professional, IBM, Mutual of America, Zero, and Simon Sinek Inc. The show offers expert insights into the strategic capabilities and behaviors needed to grow and sustain employee performance. Welcome to this episode of the People and Performance Podcast. Hey, this is Chris Bjorling, People and Performance Podcast co-host and president at Fidelo Inc. In this episode, we consider how to source and hire high performers. Our guest today is Shally Steckerl, president at the Sourcing Institute. Shally is globally recognized as a recruiting leader who has helped build sourcing organizations for companies such as Microsoft, Google, Coca-Cola, Cisco, and Motorola. He is a writer, public speaker, and an adjunct professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. He's known as the godfather of sourcing and has dedicated much of his adult life to teaching his sourcing methods to those who want to be better. Shelly understands what it takes to get leads on the phone and contracts on deck. Bill Benham and I hope you enjoy this conversation we have with Shelly. If you do, please remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Shelly, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the People and Performance Podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So... People should know who you are because you're a super cool, famous dude. But, Shelley, for, for those who are not familiar with you and your work yet, why don't you take a minute or two and introduce yourself? Sure. Okay. Well, as you've said, my name is Shelley. I have been in the recruiting industry, the talent industry, for well over a quarter century. And um, my specialization is a long, long time ago as a, as a result of my both extreme laziness and propensity to share information, I became famous for uh, hacking the internet to do the job that recruiters used to do the old-fashioned, much harder way. So I got really good at finding the unfindable, started teaching it, started talking about it, and essentially that evolved into what we now call the talent sourcing profession many, many years later and, and have uh, close to one and a half million people doing. So that is my my claim to fame. Beautiful. Thank you very much. So um, despite predictions earlier this year that uh, we're going to be in uh, tough economic times, uh, the latest reports were published just yesterday, I think. And uh, uh, the US economy is looking 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 pretty, pretty good, um, you know, fairly buoyant at the moment. However, um, there are certain sectors, tech industry, for example, where uh, I think it, people are struggling. But generally speaking, it remains difficult to source and hire top performers at the moment. Um, probably not for you. I reckon you could probably do it very quickly. Uh, but you know, for the average Joe, uh, trying, trying to find high-performing people is not easy at the moment, Shani. Why do you think that is? You know, finding high-performing people has never really been easy. It, it, the The reason why has changed, but the fact that it, it is challenging to find the right person and someone that will perform, um, you know, above expectations has always been difficult is because there's not that many of them, right? If If everyone was excellent at everything they did, things would be very different. So, when you're looking for talent, top talent, you have to look for people that are um, not necessarily high-performing now because current performance or past performance doesn't predict future results necessarily. It is one of the you know many points. 
So you can get really good at identifying people who have performed well, but you also need to make sure that they're going to be able to perform well in the environment that you're recruiting them for. So you've got that second piece of what type of person and what what competencies do they need in order to strive, not just survive, in the environment for which I'm recruiting them. So you've got finding the people that are truly performing, not the ones that just look good on paper. And then you've got finding the people that, whether they're performing currently or have the potential to perform in the future, are actually going to be a pretty good fit. Then the third challenge, which is becoming much more difficult now and much more so than it used to be, is getting them to respond. So the first challenge that I solved many, many years ago was finding the unfindable. Then, you know, the internet boom and all that, and now you have easy access to information. If anything, it's super easy to find people. Now the problem is you're not having a hard time finding people. You're having a hard time finding the right people. So it used to be tough to find a needle in a haystack. Now you have to find a needle in a stack of needles that all look very similar, but you want just the right kind of needle. But it is definitely easier to find people. The second one, how do you assess them? That hasn't been solved yet. We still have a hard time interviewing. We still have a hard time predicting future success. We still have a hard time predicting culture fit. We're getting better at it, but there's still a ways to go. And then the third one is it used to be easy to be able to call someone and they would answer, leave a message, they'd call you back, send an email and they would reply. Nowadays, you can call them, email and text them 27 times and they don't call you back. You don't even know for sure if they got the email or the LinkedIn or whatever. So engagement and response has become the third challenge. The People and Performance Podcast, supported by Fidelo Inc., is dedicated to offering tips and expert insights into the strategic capabilities and behaviors needed to establish, grow, and measure the performance of employees. If you enjoy the show, why not subscribe and give us five stars through your favorite podcast app? You mentioned culture fit a second ago. Uh, I've, I've worked with various different technology providers uh, in, in the HR tech space over the years. Um, I did a series of interviews with a company called WorkZinga uh, over the last sort of 12, 18 months. Um, this idea of, I'm sorry, the context is uh, that they specialize in, um, in culture fit. Um, this idea of culture fit, where, where do you stand on that? Because isn't that maybe susceptible to biases of the leadership and um, and maybe the candidates might question why uh, the culture should be the way it is and and, and other other people I speak to say well a culture is based on people who join the company and how they change it up you know that, that Simon Sinek why and it's constantly evolving there's a lot of questions in there but where, where do you stand on culture fit that's a really those are very good very valid points they definitely culture fit can be something that leads to groupthink. In other words, uh, we want people who think and act like us. Therefore, that that in in and of itself is a bias. But there's always going to be bias. It, it, the, the issue isn't eliminating bias; it's understanding where the bias comes from and operating with the bias, despite of the bias. So we still have to make good decisions knowing that we're biased. If you if you feel like you have no bias or you feel like you've eliminated the bias, that's just downright ignorant because we all have opinions, we all have some sort of bias. So if we have that bias, then what we're trying to look for in culture fit really is someone who is going to be able to perform. So here's an example. If this person that we're looking for is someone who works really well with a handbook or a manual, they're, they're great at following 
structure and instructions, and you're hiring them for a position at a, at a company or with a team where things are very fluid, where there's no handbook, where there's a lot of flying by the seat of your pants, they may have a difficult time being successful in that environment, not because of their skills or abilities or potential or performance, but because they're not very comfortable and may have a really hard time adjusting to a place where there isn't a handbook, so to speak. And there's a lot of other examples like that. So there, there's the culture that is and there's the culture that will be. We don't need to worry about the culture that will be because if we hire good people that are performing and the culture changes, they'll be changing with the culture, right? It's, the, it's hiring someone into our culture now that's going to arrive and essentially be repelled or, or the opposite, be repelling, right? And that, that's what we're trying to avoid because all the work of finding somebody and hiring them will be for naught if they end up, if they end up quitting, you know, three, three months later and, and don't get to stay long enough to add value to the organization. What do you think is different about what top candidates expect from their next job and the expectations perhaps before the pandemic? So, you know, we're seeing more and more of these uh, Gen Zers coming into the workplace. I'm, I'm a millennial, Shadi, and uh, uh, people have uh, labeled us as entitled and other, other mean words over the years. But um, <clears throat> I feel like these Gen Zers uh, are even more adamant in terms of what they want and how they how they're going to work and uh, the brands that they're prepared to work for and that connection and so on and so forth. Um, and I also think maybe things have been accelerated over the last few years uh, because, because of the pandemic and, and other factors. Um, what, what do you, you think has changed over the last few years? Well, I think what's what's changed and what hasn't changed are are the same. In other words, just like cultures in organizations evolve, the culture of a generation is also going to evolve. The, the, the behaviors and cultural affects of the boomer generation when they themselves were teens is very different than what they're you know into now. So that's going to evolve. Um, I think you know, that, that's what, what hasn't changed is the changing nature of generations, right? But what has changed is, I think, something much more permanent that is a, a higher level need or a much more urgent need for transparency or rather less tolerance for um, smoke and mirrors and obfuscation and uh, keeping, you know, keeping things close to the vest. So I think these younger generations are growing up with a lot more of a glass house and are learning to what whatever that is going to lead to. They're going to adapt to whatever the world's going to look like with with glass walls, essentially. They're learning to live in it, and they're actually kind of expecting it. They're They're finding it less tolerable to go into an environment where they don't necessarily know who their boss is going to be or what their career path is going to be. And they're asking questions about that or looking for answers from themselves, from their research, from their peers. So if we don't provide that transparency or at least somehow allow for it to evolve, then uh, we are essentially estranging them because they're not going to be comfortable in a space where everything is kept in its own you know, tight, closed box. Not, not to say that there's never going to be any secrets or that there's never going to be any corporate information that's classified or confidential. Like, you know, of course, there's certain things that the CEO and the CFO need to keep to themselves in order to operate the business, competitive advantages and things like that. But overall, just being kept in the dark is a lot less tolerable. 
Very good, very good. Thank you very much. Okay, so for my next couple of questions here, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you. I'm gonna challenge you to answer right. in one one minute or less for the next two. Uh, so next one, how can how can hiring managers mess it up? Is my question for you uh, specifically? How how can they mess it up in the in the interview stage? So they've, they've you know they've worked with uh, sources to to get to the point where they've got decent candidates coming into the interview stage. What what pitfalls? Do hiring managers need to avoid to make sure that they can get that top performer, that, that that awesome talent over the line? But answer in one minute or less, please, sir. Scaring candidates away. During the interview, instead of focusing on what are the skills necessary for the job and do the, does this person have those skills and measuring those skills, they spend a lot of time selling them on the opportunity and selling them the company, which comes across as desperate and makes candidates feel like, well, why are they pushing so hard? Are they having a real hot time filling the job? Is this company not worth working at? So it's almost like what we used to tell hiring managers, you got to sell the job. Now they're sometimes doing it too much and overselling it and making the candidate maybe shy away because they're a little worried about as to why. Man, you had like 15 seconds to spare. Good work, Charlie. Um, <laughs> the next two questions that I'm going to ask of you are questions that we ask of all of our guests. So uh, that means if you feel that you're repeating yourself a little bit from answers that you've given before, although I don't think you will much today, um, don't worry about it because these are standard questions and we use them in clever ways. We cut them up and put them in clip shows and all the rest of it. All right. So the first of the two standard questions is another in one minute or lesser. Um, in one minute or less, can you share one piece of advice or some direction that you've been given by a mentor, a leader or a colleague that inspired you to perform at a higher level in your career? I think the best piece of advice that I've ever received was very early on in my career with a mentor that I was surprised to, well, happily surprised to uh, be mentored by. And that was that it's important to try to live your life in a way where your, your life story is written in pages that are scattered from the top of a building or from the top of the Grand Canyon, meaning that your life story is is in pages that are scattered everywhere, and there's really not much you can do to get all of them back. So try to live a life so that whatever you're, you know, you're good, you're bad, whatever it is on that piece of paper, it's it's okay if somebody sees it, and you know, you're really not going to have an opportunity to kind of take it back. So that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means when you when you make a mistake, at least hey, you know, admit it. So that that's something that has gone with me and I make mistakes all the time, but a lot of people around you will tell you, around me, sorry, will tell me that if I, most of the time, if I did make a mistake, I will admit it and own up to it. I think that's important. So, you know, live your life as if it was kind of being documented for perpetuity and there's nothing you can do to change it. Wonderful, thank you. Next question, uh, from a culture and people processes perspective, what does a high performing company mean to you? High-performing companies, I believe, have a few core principles that, that makes them high-performing. One of them is velocity. It's the, the, the ability to continue trying and failing. Some people call it fail fast. If you're not constantly innovating, which is trying and failing, then it's an easy thing to kind of get left behind. There's examples of really strong companies that had great technologies 
like Kodak, for example, that failed to continue innovating. So I think innovation and, and speed velocity, if you will, is one of them. And the other is appreciating their people. And not just saying, oh, you know, people are our number one asset, but I mean, actually really taking care, compassionately taking care of their people as much as they possibly can. That doesn't mean that we have to have companies that become the providers of everything, but being compassionate doesn't mean that they have to pry for everything that a, a person needs. It just means that if the person has a particular situation and, you know, you need to be a little bit more understanding of that one situation, that you should be rather than making it kind of like, this is the way. And if you don't do this, if you deviate from this, then you don't work here. So velocity and compassion. Well, I've got a lot of compassion and love for you, Shelly, and your ideas. Uh, before we wrap up, sir, how can we learn more about you and all the cool things that you get up to over at the Sourcing Institute? Well, easiest thing would be to go to SRCN, that's Sierra, Ray, Charlie, Nancy, dot co co forward slash me and then that'll give you a landing page that will take you to my linkedin and 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 other things like that the second best thing would be to go to sourcingfoundation.org which is what my 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 nonprofit um it's a charity where we help people become sourcers and get them out of uh, unemployment so sourcingfoundation.org Okay, thank you. On behalf of Chris Bueling and on behalf of myself, uh, that just leaves me to say thank you very much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Always good to be here with you guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the People and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to like, comment, and subscribe.